My name is Tariq Zayer, and you're listening to the Science of Philosophy. Today, Nietzsche Part 2. What is happiness? Last episode, we talked about Nietzsche's claim that God is dead and how it matched up to modern sociological surveys on religious belief. And regardless of what your opinion on the modern situation is, Nietzsche concluded that God is in fact dead and that as a result, two profound possibilities lie ahead of us. Either we descend into the depressing valuelessness of nihilism, or we figure out some way forward. If this is a movie, this is the part where the hero has been completely abandoned by everyone and everything she could rely on. The bad guy has seemingly won. A part of the hero wants to give up, cannot imagine going forward, but the better part of her refuses. She doesn't stay down. She gets back up and faces her hopeless situation with a smile, not because she knows she will overcome it, but precisely because she knows that when she does not, when she loses, that humanity or whatever alien race she belongs to will have died listening to the most beautiful part of itself, that they would not disappear from the world without a final trace of what once justified their existence, that the destruction of goodness and beauty and love would in fact be a tragedy and not just another meaningless movement of matter and motion. But as is always the case with movies like this, the situation wasn't as hopeless as it initially seemed. The hero can always win. We can win too. How? Well, today I want to talk about some of Nietzsche's positive ideas about and negative critiques of happiness, of how we can live a good life in light of God's supposed death. So what I want to do in this part is talk about defining happiness. Now, in philosophy, this is a long-standing tradition. For instance, if you read many of the Platonic dialogues, Socrates is asking someone, what is justice? What is the good, etc.? Trying to define concepts. Um, this, is, this is an important part of doing philosophy. And one of the many ways I think philosophy can contribute to science. And in science, defining a concept is called operationalizing it because you don't just have to define it in an abstract way, but you also are trying to measure it in science. And when you're measuring something, you're implicitly defining it, right? Because you're assuming that the thing you're measuring is the thing you're trying to study. So scientists deal with defining concepts or operationalizing them. Um, in many ways, it's one of the most important parts of doing scientific research. And so I try and show in this episode how Nietzsche critiques a very common understanding of happiness, of what it means to be happy, and how the science has also used that Nietzschean critique to change the way it operationalizes happiness and evaluates certain ways of life as making someone happy. 
And so I hope in that way it's not only useful to understanding Nietzsche's philosophy, but it also gives you an idea of what many people usually face with skepticism that we can scientifically measure and study human happiness. Uh, and I hope that this gives some clarity about the specifics of what goes into that process and how it's deeply philosophical and, in my opinion, helpful and important. So that's the brief overview summary, but as I always like to say, the life of a work isn't in its summary, but in its execution. And so without further ado, I'd like to present to you Nietzsche and happiness. Yeah, I don't know where to start. How do you admit that you're falling apart? I mean, how will I admit that I'm falling apart? My mother's gonna worry, but I'm fine in my heart. I live the worst that I've said. And I live with a voice that tends to tell me that I'm shit in my head. And well, maybe I should fuck it and be happy instead. I should just say fuck it and be happy instead, right? Are you happy? The podcast Fred was listening to asked him. For Fred, the question was confounding, like trying to speak a language he didn't know. He didn't feel particularly unhappy. But what is happiness? Fred cycled through some of the happiest moments in his life to see if he matched up to them now, retrieving that ball in the eighth grade with five seconds left in the fourth quarter and running it past every single defender in front of his high school crush to score a buzzer beater touchdown to win the game his teammates jumping up and down and hugging each other in a giant circle for minutes with him as the centerpiece eventually trying to lift him up above their heads like in the movies but being unable to and all of them falling down to the ground under his weight laughing all of the adults coming up to him for hours afterwards and slapping him on the back with approving smiles. He felt accomplished, successful, like he had reached some kind of peak. Right now he did not feel that way. Was he therefore unhappy? What is happiness? Fred thought back to those first few days of falling in love when everything he did or saw was instilled with a kind of growing excitement and he felt like he knew a secret about the world's benevolence that nobody else did. He felt blissful, loved, and loving. He did not feel that way right now. Was he therefore unhappy? What is happiness? He thought to himself. Fred recalled a tweet one of his childhood friends had posted the other day. It read as follows. The last time I remember being genuinely happy was January 15th, 2021 at about 4 p.m. I was in Houston traffic, my phone was dead, and the sun was shining in such a brilliant fucking way. Golden was on the radio. I had just left a toxic relationship. I thought I was free. Zero retweets, four likes. In the next tweet in the thread, she continued, I can't even listen to that song without crying anymore. My soul felt so full and bright. I just want to feel that way again. Zero retweets, one like. As Fred cycled through his happiest memories, it struck him that happiness feels like listening to top 40 radio hits. 
Fred occasionally enjoyed the songs on a sunny road trip or a crowded party, but even for him, the thought of only listening to shallow, feel-good pop for the rest of his life sounded exhausting. Fred liked his sad folk or his melancholic indie music too. The question posed by the podcast, Are You Happy?, started to feel annoyingly irrelevant. It's like we place so much focus as a culture on perpetually capturing these elusive moments of pure bliss, which are blissful precisely because they are rare, and then we all feel disappointed and like we're failures when every waking moment of our lives isn't the climax of some romantic comedy. We think we have to feel that way all the time, and then if we don't, then something is wrong with us. It makes it so that if we want to do something which has even the slightest potential to end in failure or sadness, you know, things like following our dreams or expressing our emotions, all of the things which make us really in a way truly alive, we avoid them completely so that we can clutch to this fake summit of happiness that we are terrified of falling down from or appearing to others as having fallen down from. We become risk averse, boring, shallow, but at least we're not unhappy though, right? But what is happiness? Fred thought to himself. As he thought about it in another way, he realized that those rare moments of happiness were completely selfish. They all involved satisfying his own wants, enjoying what was given to him. It made him nauseous. If happiness is a feeling, it is subjective. It exists only for us in that moment, nobody else. So the idea of cultivating one's entire life to produce happiness as much as possible seemed not only outrageously selfish, but also misguided. Fred imagined himself on his deathbed, reflecting back on what he did. Didn't he want there to be some lasting legacy? Didn't he want to have helped the world in some way, regardless of how it made him feel? Didn't he want to leave something behind before he went? Do I care about my happiness? Fred exclaimed, finally at the top of his lungs. I care about my work! And just then, Fred awoke, sweaty, in a beeping hospital room, the words heroin overdose written somewhere on the strewn notes of a doctor's pad as he entered the room. What Fred is getting at in this story is something his great-grandfather, Friedrich Nietzsche, was philosophizing about in the late 19th century, namely this question of what is happiness? Is it even worth pursuing? And is a happy life different from a meaningful one? A very common understanding of happiness is that it is just this experience of something like sustained bliss. The happy person we commonly think is a person who's always in a cheerful mood. They're smiling as they walk down the street. And this is the kind of happiness or definition of happiness that Nietzsche despises. And here's one reason why. Imagine that you are a politician with a lot of power and your aim is to maximize happiness in your society. If your definition of happiness is a cheerful, smiling mood, then you're going to be far more likely to build circuses than libraries. 
To put it in another way, if happiness is just an upbeat, cheerful mood and your aim is to maximize happiness, then Phoebe Bridgers and Radiohead and Frank Ocean and every sad indie artist are gonna have to be excommunicated, exiled from our society. Because if happiness is a cheerful mood, then Frank Ocean is committing a holocaust of happiness. And so Nietzsche's point is, look, if you like the top 40 cheerful radio hits, then good for you. But some of us don't. And your definition of happiness is leaving us out. And what's more, if we base our society on this shallow definition of happiness, we're in danger of forgetting that there is even an alternative that we can strive for more than just hedonistic comfort. In his work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Nietzsche has his main character deliver a warning of what this comfort-based definition of happiness could lead to if we aren't careful, and I'll quote it at length here. Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche When Zarathustra came into the next town, he found many people gathered together in the marketplace. And thus spoke Zarathustra to the people, The time has come for man to set himself a goal. The time has come for man to plant the seed of his highest hope. His soil is still rich enough, but one day this soil will be poor and domesticated, and no tall tree will be able to grow in it. Alas, the time is coming when man will no longer shoot the arrow of his longing beyond man, and the string of his bow will have forgotten how to whir. I say unto you, one must still have chaos in oneself to be able to give birth to a dancing star. I say unto you, you still have chaos in yourselves. Alas, the time is coming when man will no longer give birth to a star. Alas, the time of the most despicable man is coming, he that is no longer able to despise himself. Behold, I show you the last man. What is love? What is creation? What is longing? What is a star? Thus asks the last man, and he blinks. The earth has become small, and on it hops the last man, who makes everything small. His race is as ineradicable as the flea beetle. The last man lives the longest. We have invented happiness, say the last men, and they blink. They have left the regions where it was hard to live, for one needs warmth. One still loves one's neighbor and rubs against him, for one needs warmth. Becoming sick and harboring suspicion are sinful to them. One proceeds carefully. A fool, whoever still stumbles over stones or human beings. A little poison now and then, that makes for agreeable dreams, and much poison in the end for an agreeable death. One still works, for work is a form of entertainment, but one is careful, lest the entertainment be too harrowing. One no longer becomes poor or rich, both require too much exertion. Who still wants to rule? Who obey? Both require too much exertion. No shepherd in one herd. Everybody wants the same, everybody is the same. Whoever feels different goes voluntarily into a madhouse. Formerly all the world was mad, say the most refined, and they blink. One is clever and knows everything that has ever happened, so there is no end of derision. One still quarrels, but one is soon reconciled, else it might spoil the digestion. One has one's little pleasure for the day and one's little pleasure for the night, but one has a regard for health. 
We have invented happiness, say the last men, and they blink. For Nietzsche, there's something more important than positive mood or emotion. And the reason he thinks you build libraries over circuses is that libraries offer engagement and meaning, whereas circuses offer often a shallow, fleeting moment of joy. An introverted person who is constantly suffering migraines and nausea, who very rarely feels a cheerful mood, which is exactly what Nietzsche himself was, that kind of person, Nietzsche claims, can still have meaning and engagement and therefore true as opposed to false happiness. And in fact, he not only thinks that a person who suffers in this way can be truly happy, but that that kind of suffering is necessary for true happiness, right? One na analogy I've heard is to imagine like hiking up a really high mountain or trail. You've been struggling up it all day, wondering whether or not you would even make it, wanting to go back several times. You're so tired. And then finally, at last, you reach the top and the view is breathtaking. And now, imagine instead of struggling up the mountain all day, you took a helicopter up there in five minutes and look out. Nietzsche thinks that part of what makes the view so beautiful in the first place was the fact that it was so hard to get up there. The suffering and struggle is sublimated into more joy and meaning, and without the experience, it feels empty or hollow. Another example is uh, eating Takis or any kind of spicy food, really, right? In my experience, the satisfaction of eating spicy foods isn't that they are just purely pleasant, but precisely because they are not pleasant, because they're painful. That is why I enjoy them so much, right? Not in spite of the suffering they cause, but because of it. And this is how Nietzsche thinks we should view suffering in our own lives on a much broader scale. Anyways, we're getting somewhat ahead of ourselves. All of this is just to say that if he must choose, Nietzsche prefers meaning to happiness. But ideally, he thinks true happiness is something that incorporates meaning and engagement into its definition. But what does the science say? Jodan's podcast asked him. He scoffed. His son, who was sitting in the passenger seat, rolled his eyes. Of course you wouldn't care about the science, the son said in that pretentious way Jodan hated. But some of us actually care about getting at the truth. Jodan tightened his grip on the steering wheel and massaged the inside of his right cheek with his tongue. He was driving up one of the highways near Harvard, dropping his son off to college. If you're so smart, why don't you give me a scientific definition of happiness, Jodan said. His son furrowed his brow and fumbled around mentally for a second. Jodan continued, You're much smarter than I am, and I I'm proud of you, but I do know some things, man. His son bunkered down for another lecture. Like, for instance, scientists don't know about happiness. If they did, they wouldn't be scientists. <laughs> Jodan laughed at his joke, which gave his son a chance to interject. Then what do you say happiness is? His son, who was named John, asked. Jodon smiled at the question. 
See, that's just the point, John. I just live my life, man. I don't try to confine everything down to nerdy little components. It's a waste of time. Now, I I get for like flying rockets and measuring climate change and stuff. Science is important. But like some things are too complex. They aren't meant to be measured. I mean, what do these scientists even do? Ask every idiot, are you happy, and jot down the answer. You've met Billy, who works down at the feed store, the one with the two teeth in his head. You think that motherfucker knows whether he's happy or not? There ain't a thought behind those eyes, John. Jodan burst out in a laugh, and again, John smirked against his will. I've thought about that too, John said. You know, one of my professors was talking about how happiness is subjective, which means it can't be objectively measured from the outside. The only way to get data on it is through self-reporting, like just asking people questions and stuff. Jodon wanted to tell his son that he knew what subjective and self-reporting meant, that he didn't have to dumb everything down for him, but he let him go on. But that seems contentious to me for a couple of reasons. For instance, when a scientist asks a person which of two experiences made them happier, the subject is at best comparing something they are currently experiencing with their memory of something they experienced in the past. But memories are notoriously unreliable, like how a few months ago you showed me that picture of us at New Orleans when I was little and I told you I wanted to go back sometime because I remembered how much fun it was and you told me that in reality I had thrown a tantrum in the first hour because the beignet's line was too long and for the rest of the day I had soaked in anger. Yeah, exactly, Jodon said. But you know, what was weird was after class I went up to that same professor, Professor Gilbert, and I told him the thing about memory not being reliable and rather than arguing with me, he just kept nodding along. What do you mean? Jodon asked. Well, I thought I was telling him in a kind of polite way why I thought his whole field was invalid, but far from being offended, he kept emphasizing all the ways I was right and even expanding on others. For instance, he said it's not just our memories that are bad, but it's even hard to measure how much we enjoy something in the present because the environment can influence our answer. Like, he mentioned this one study where they ranked people's enjoyment of a slice of cake, and for half of the participants, the researchers just like brought them a slice of cake and had them rank it but for the other half they did the same thing but there just so happened to be an open can of spam in the room with them and so the people in the room with the spam reported enjoying the cake being much more delicious than the others which just goes to show he said how if someone makes the claim cake makes one happy and uses people's measured enjoyment of cake to support the claim it could just be that cake in comparison to disgusting things makes me happy or something like that you know what i mean like it could even be that the cake or whatever else they're measuring doesn't make people happy at all but the enjoyment is only coming from some kind of comparison they're making i never thought about that before but that makes sense but if he admits that happiness can't be measured why does he try to do it jodon asked well that's exactly what i asked him john said he told me actually i took notes let me pull them out real quick John pulled out a spiral notebook out of his backpack, which was between his legs in the passenger seat of the car. Okay, here it is. He said, As you have pointed out, it is extremely difficult to measure an individual's happiness and feel completely comfortable in the validity and reliability of that measurement. People may not know how they feel or remember how they felt, and even if they do, scientists can never know exactly how their experience maps onto their description of that experience and hence they cannot know precisely how to interpret people's claims. 
All of this suggests that the scientific study of subjective experiences is bound to be tough going. But difficulty should not be confused with impossibility. The nature of a subjective experience suggests there will never be a happyometer, a perfectly reliable instrument that allows an observer to measure with complete accuracy the characteristics of another person's subjective experience so that the measurement can be taken, recorded, and compared with another. If we demand that level of perfection from our tools, then we'd better pack up the eye trackers, brain scanners, and color swatches and seed the study of subjective experience to the poets who did a nice job with it for the first few thousand years. But if we do that, then it is only fair that we hand them the study of almost everything else as well. Chronometers, thermometers, barometers, spectrometers, and every other device that scientists use to measure the objects of their interest are imperfect. Every one of them introduces some degree of error into the observation it allows, which is why governments and universities pay obscene sums of money each year for the slightly more perfect version of each. And if we're purging ourselves of all things that afford us only imperfect approximations of the truth, then we need to discard not only psychology and the physical sciences, but law, economics, and history as well. In short, if we adhere to the standard of perfection in all of our endeavors, we are left with nothing but mathematics and the White Album. Imperfections in measurement are always a problem, but they are only a devastating problem when we don't recognize them. If we have a deep scratch on our eyeglasses and don't know it, we may erroneously conclude that a small crack has opened in the fabric of space and is following us wherever we go. But if we are cognizant of the scratch, we can do our best to factor it out of our observations, reminding ourselves that what looks like a rip in space is actually just a flaw in the device we are using to observe it. We scientists stringently study problems like those associated with memory and comparison so that we can avoid them. We have found that of all the flawed measures of subjective experience that we can take, the honest real-time report of the attentive individual is the least flawed. There are many other ways to measure happiness, of course, and some of them appear to be much more rigorous, scientific, and objective than a person's own claims. For example, electromyography allows us to measure the electrical signals produced by the striated muscles of the face, such as corrugator supercilia, which furrows our brows when we experience something unpleasant, or the zygomaticus major, which pulls our mouth up towards our ears when we smile. Physiography allows us to measure the electrodermal, respiratory, and cardiac activity of the autonomic emotions, electronescephalography, positron emission tomography, and magnetic resonance imaging allows us to measure electrical activity and blood flow in different regions of the brains, such as the left and right prefrontal cortex, which tend to be active when we are experiencing positive and negative emotions, respectively. Even a clock can be a useful device for measuring happiness, because startled people tend to blink more slowly when they are feeling happy than when they are feeling fearful or anxious. Scientists who rely on the honest, real-time reports of attentive individuals often feel the need to defend that choice by reminding us that these reports correlate strongly with other measures of happiness, but in a sense they've got it backward. After all, the only reason why we take any of these bodily events, from muscle movement to cerebral blood flow, as indices of happiness is that people tell us they are. If everyone claimed to feel raging anger or thick black 
lack depression when their zygomatic muscle contracted, their eye blink slowed, and the left anterior brain region filled with blood, then we would have to revise our interpretations of these physiological changes and take them as indices of unhappiness instead. If we want to know how a person feels, we must begin by acknowledging the fact that there is one and only one observer stationed at the critical point of view. She may not always remember what she felt before, and she may not always be aware of what she is feeling right now. We may be puzzled by her reports, skeptical of her memory, and worried about her ability to use language as we do, but when all our hand-wringing is over, we must admit that she is the only person who even has the slightest chance of describing the view from in here, which is why her claims serve as the gold standard against which all other measures are measured. We will have greater confidence in her claims when they jibe with what other less privileged observers tell us, when we feel confident that she evaluates her experience against the same background that we do, when her body does what most other bodies do when they experience what she is claiming to experience, and so on. But even when all of these various indices of happiness dovetail nicely, we cannot be perfectly sure that we know the truth about her inner world. We can, however, be sure that we have come as close as observers ever get, and that has to be good enough. A common objection to the scientific study of happiness is that happiness is something too complicated for science to explore. I hear this objection from average everyday people and elite Ivy League graduates alike, and the first thing to say is that the logic behind this concern, I think, is valid. Happiness is complicated, but I don't think that means science shouldn't study it. Just take any other complicated subject. For instance, imagine you wanted to know the precise elemental material of a meteor, but all you have to go off of is the varying spectrums of light reflected off its surface as it soars above our heads at millions of miles per hour. Now, should you use science to study this complicated question or something else? Science, of course. That's because you recognize when it comes to complex subjects, it's increasingly harder to guess the correct answer. You have to go out and do the hard work of gathering data and research, piecing all the pieces together, and coming up with educated hypotheses, testing those hypotheses and proving them wrong, and slowly but surely updating and improving them on the basis of new evidence and reasons. And that's exactly what science does best. But somehow, when we want to study the most important and most complicated subjects, such as human happiness, we suppose we should just throw out science out the window and rely on our best guesswork instead. And I get that there's a valid concern that happiness is not easily measured. But when something is hard to measure, we don't just give up and start guessing. We continually try to improve our methods and tools. In one sense, to ask what is happiness is to ask what is the weather, right? What is the weather? <laughs> well, it has something to do with the clouds, I think, but that's not all it is. It's also the wind and the humidity and the precipitation and a dozen other complex components that we don't even have a full grasp on, even in our modern age. And yet, we still have weathermen. 
And it's good that we do because we want to be able to predict things in the future and adjust the way we live our lives accordingly. Like maybe we want to know whether we should bring an umbrella or not. And the predictions aren't always right. Many times your weather app gets next week's rain wrong. But in response to that, do we throw up our hands and give up on the whole enterprise and start going with our gut feelings and intuitions of what the weather will be instead? Of course not. We try to improve the way we measure and predict the weather, and it's the exact same with happiness. And this brings us, at last, back to Nietzsche's objection to happiness. For Nietzsche, we are increasingly confusing the weather with just the clouds. We think of happiness as comfort or bliss, which is surely an important component of it, but it's not all there is. When a parent goes to their child's singing concert and listens to the excruciating, out-of-tune performance, they're not comfortable. They're not feeling positive emotions of bliss. But they go, and they want to go because they care about their relationship with their daughter. When a human rights activist stands up against oppression, knowing she'll be imprisoned, she's certainly not choosing what will bring her the most comfort. But she still stands up against injustice because she values the meaning that comes from being a part of something bigger than oneself and fighting for what's right more than just mere positive emotion and comfort. And it's hard because sometimes Nietzsche gives the impression of being against happiness altogether. He'll talk about it disparagingly, but then in other places he, he uses it rather positively. And on one level, he's trying to differentiate between this false happiness of purely positive emotions and comfort. And this is shown by the way he puts happiness in quotation marks in some places when describing that kind of happiness, but uses it without quotation marks in other places when describing a kind of happiness that he endorses. But on the other hand, he doesn't always do this quotation mark trick. Sometimes he gives the impression that he thinks happiness is inextricably connected to this shallow definition of pleasure and positive emotion, and that we need to dispense with the whole concept altogether. And funnily enough, this is really just the place the science has arrived at as well. Um, for instance, Roy Baumeister, a Francis Epps professor of psychology at Florida State University, has argued that there's a fundamental difference between a happy life and a meaningful life. In a paper published in the Journal of Positive Psychology, Baumeister and his colleagues found that a meaningful life and a happy life often go hand in hand, but not always. They surveyed um, a few hundred adults looking for correlations between their levels of happiness, meaning, and various other aspects of their lives. And their statistical analysis tried to separate out what brought meaning to one's life, but not happiness. And what brought happiness, but not meaning. And their findings suggest that that meaning is not connected with whether one is healthy or has enough money or feels comfortable in life, whereas happiness, which they claim is separate from meaning, is connected to those things. This is useful, I think, in trying to specify what I mean when I say that Nietzsche favors meaning over purely positive emotions or pleasure. But I, I don't want you to think that this study that thinks happiness and meaning are separate is the um, consensus, because many so positive psychologists, just like Nietzsche in certain parts of his writing, disagree with this distinction between happiness and meaning. For these positive psychologists, for instance, like Ed Diener of the University of Illinois or Sanja Lyubomirsky of the University of California, Riverside, for them, happiness is something broader 
than people like Baumeister imply. It's something broader in the sense that it incorporates meaning into its definition. So for an increasingly great number of social scientists, happiness is, you know, to put it in one way, it's it's the thing and someone is better off or even best off having. This is this is one of the ways the ancients described it or one component of how they described it, right? Something one is better off or even best off having is something that makes you happy. So something you choose for its own sake. And while this may very often include things that are pleasant, it does not have to. The pleasure or positive emotion aspect just seems to be built into the definition of the word happiness for many people because that's the only thing they can imagine being good in and of themselves. And in an attempt to escape that misconception, you'll see many positive psychologists use this term subjective well-being or just well-being instead. And this is an attempt to capture those things we choose for their own sake, which include but not exclusively pleasure-inducing. In fact, many of the things we choose for their own sake are quite painful. And the evolution of the field on this point is fascinating. For many years, the most common way of operationalizing happiness has been by monitoring subjects' day-to-day -day experience of positive or negative emotions. This is generally referred to as affective or hedonic happiness. Affective measurements try to capture the feelings of joy or discomfort in daily life, which is undeniably an important aspect of what we all mean by happiness. But then there's another very common way researchers operationalize happiness by measuring overall life satisfaction. And this is generally referred to as evaluative or eudaimonic happiness. And evaluative measurements attempt to gauge overall happiness by asking people to give comprehensive assessments of their life on a big picture scale. But then comes along the founder of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, who pioneered the life satisfaction measure of happiness. And he comes and gives a powerful Nietzschean critique of the entire thing. And this is extra fascinating because Martin Seligman is a big reader of Nietzsche. So there's surely some influence there, I think. For Seligman, positive emotions do not capture everything we care about when we speak of long-term life satisfaction or well-being. We also care about things such as engagement, like the sense of flow you get from working on a challenging problem, or meaning, right, feeling as if we're part of something larger than ourselves, or positive relationships or accomplishments, none of which can be reduced down to a simple desire for positive emotion. Measuring these independent attributes of well-being in addition to positive emotions for Martin Seligman and for Nietzsche is as important as measuring the wind chill and the humidity and the temperature in addition to the clouds if you're trying to measure the weather. And so based on this Nietzschean critique or addition, Martin Seligman derives what he calls the PERMA theory of human well-being. PERMA is an acronym and each of these components is measured via questionnaire, which you can take online. I've included a link um, to do so in the show notes. The P stands for positive emotion, one's general tendencies toward feeling, contentment, and joy. Um, the E stands for engagement, which refers to being absorbed, interested, and involved in an activity or the world itself. And very high levels of engagement are known as a state called flow, in which you are so completely absorbed in an activity that you lose all sense of time. And those activities which flood our minds with calm, focus, and joy, whether it's playing an instrument or playing a sport or dancing, working on an interesting project at work, or even just a hobby. 
Um, the R stands for relationships, which refers to feeling loved, supported, and valued by others. Positive relationships with one's parents, siblings, peers, coworkers, and friends is a key ingredient to overall joy. Um, strong relationships also provide support in difficult times that require resilience. We need neurologically to know that we belong to a group. It helps us feel safe and valued and has for millions of years. The M stands for meaning, which refers to having a sense of purpose in life, a direction where life is going, feeling that life is valuable and worth living, or connecting to something greater than ourselves, such as religious faith, a charity, or a personally meaningful goal. Meaning provides a sense that life matters, and this is one of the components Nietzsche thinks we're most lacking in our modern times. And finally, lastly, the A stands for achievement, having goals and ambition in life, which help give us a sense of accomplishment. And so there you have it, the PERMA theory of well-being, which is founded on a Nietzschean critique of common notions or understandings of happiness. <laughs> and just in the simple effort to get a definition of happiness, we've viciously criticized the concept of happiness altogether, torn it down, smashed it into pieces, and finally, at last, slowly built it back up. And I, for one, am glad that we did. And that's really the bread and butter of philosophy. And I, and I hope, if nothing else, this episode shows just how interrelated philosophy and science are. And in and, and this case, they're almost the exact same thing in trying to define this concept such as happiness. Um, obviously, the scientists have a different motivation for trying to define it. They want to define it so that they can measure it, whereas the philosopher is just really trying to understand what it is. And I think both of those motivations are important and helpful to the other because the scientist wants to know, actually measure the true thing, um, and the philosopher needs to get more down to earth into things that we can actually um, touch and, and deal with so that we can learn how to live our lives in some uh, helpful way. And so now we're in a very strong position to start actually interpreting Nietzsche's positive claims surrounding what will and will not bring us true happiness and evaluating them scientifically. We've tried to establish a, a Nietzschean definition of happiness, and I've also tried to establish that scientists are able to measure happiness and that it's valuable to evaluate philosophers' claims about happiness using a scientific tool of evaluation. And so this is exciting because I think the, the claims Nietzsche makes about happiness, if properly understood, have the potential to be completely and utterly, in my opinion, life-changing. And so stick around for the next episode, the next part of Nietzsche, where we'll go into his claims about striving and contentment. I'll see you next time.
uh, first I want to ask you, what is what is the point of philosophy? It's not, there's not a point. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because it's just thinking. 